own copy of God's Word or the ones provided for you uh, in the chairs below to Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. Uh, and as you turn to Acts chapter 2, 1 to 41, uh, my friends, in order for us to be a spiritually healthy church that wholeheartedly enters into our God-given mission of making mature disciples of Jesus, uh, we need to remember a couple of things this morning. We need to remember that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the promised one who died and rose again to save us from our sins. We need to remember that Jesus is the king who leads us triumphantly down God's paths of righteousness. And we need to remember that Jesus is actually at work in our lives right now as both Lord and Christ to bless our repentance and so actually change us and transform our church into a brighter and clearer picture of heaven's own communal life. Uh, which is all to say we need to remember Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost, or as it's also known in the Bible, the Feast of Weeks, was at first an Old Testament celebration of life with God. It took place 50 days after Pentecost, a Passover, which is why it's called Pentecost, 50 days. Uh, Pentecost celebrated God's forgiveness and mercy. It celebrated the beautiful blessing that God had taken a people and made his home among them. It celebrated God's provisions of life and friendship and reconciliation and transformation. It even celebrated the witness of God's people to the world and the way in which God brought in converts. Uh, sometimes our translations will say proselytes. Uh, I don't know why, but that's what they do. But he brought in converts, that is Gentile worshipers of the triune God into God's people. Uh, Pentecost is a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. Uh, which is why it's the time that Jesus chose to reveal the power of his kingdom and expand his church into the world. Fifty days after his resurrection, Jesus chose this day of joy to announce to the world that their Messiah had come and saved them and paid the penalty for their sins, and that their king had come and taken his throne in heaven so that he could lead them in righteousness here on earth, while at the same time leading them to glory in their eternal home. And he chose this day of celebration, Pentecost, uh, because it's a celebration of reconciliation and witness-bearing so that he could invite his people to follow him down that path of transforming repentance. Uh, my friends, we need this word today. Uh, don't you? I do. We've been talking about Acts according to its oldest title, the things that are begun with God. Uh, but can we be honest with each other for a second? Sometimes uh, we don't really believe that Jesus will forgive us or really will bring freedom or really, really will bring transformation through repentance. Sometimes uh, we live like Jesus doesn't respond to repentance, that Jesus doesn't reign from heaven. And in fact, sometimes we live like Jesus is still dead in the tomb. Uh, I think even the Apostle Paul, that great evangelist, suffered from this feeling the way that we do, which is why I think he made it a point, as we see in some of his letters, to celebrate Pentecost with the church every year, even making occasionally special trips back to Jerusalem, because that's where the big celebration of Pentecost was in the early church. Uh, sometimes we need to be reminded of who Jesus is and what he's done and what he's doing through us as we join him on his mission to make mature disciples. And so that's our goal this morning, which is to look at the work of Christ 
and uh, just what he has done for us and what he's doing for us. Uh, this is a long passage this morning. I'm going to read it all. I'm going to try and read it uh, with emotion and inflection so y'all don't fall asleep during it. But it's, 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 it's super interesting in its, in its own right. Uh, so I'm going to read the entire passage, and then we're going to reflect on it in big sections using Peter's own summary of his own sermon, which is in verse 36. Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you've crucified. Uh, so we're going to look at, after we've read it, Jesus is the Christ, that is, he's the Messiah. Jesus is the Lord. And then finally, being invited into the Lord Jesus Christ's transforming work. So let's turn now to Acts chapter 2. We'll read verses 1 through 41. Uh, let's hear now God's word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. It's only nine o'clock in the morning. Uh, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. And the sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass, that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth? A man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made 
Own to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out on this, out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's Father, reading of God's own word. Let's pray together. Father, as we give thanks to you for your word, which we know that you have given to us for our instruction and our edification. Lord, we pray that you would use it to show us Christ and his work so that we could see again what it means that he is the Christ and that he is our Lord and that he responds to us in repentance. He responds to us when we repent. Uh, Father, we pray that uh, your spirit would go now out with your word, so it would give us the humility without which no one may understand your truth, that it would give us minds to understand, ears to hear, and hearts to believe your word. Father, may the words of my mouth as your preacher, and may the meditation of all our hearts as those called to hear and to respond to your word. May it all now be pleasing in your sight. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The first thing I want to look at this morning is a reminder that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised one. Uh, when our passage begins, we're told that the disciples, which would be the now 12 apostles and the roughly 120 other disciples of Jesus that we met last week, they're all gathered in one place, which is called a house, which is most likely a temple, uh, traditionally, or a temple building. Uh, traditionally, we tend to think of them as being gathered in the upper room, uh, but honestly, houses and rooms weren't big enough back then to fit 120 people. And as the text doesn't tell us that the disciples went outside, and in fact seems to indicate that as soon as the disciples started preaching other languages, people heard them and came to them, I think the apostles and the disciples were out on the streets together, maybe outside in one of the porticos that was sheltered from the sun, probably right outside the temple itself, celebrating Pentecost. Uh, and why wouldn't they be? I mean, after all, this is the day of celebrating forgiveness, reconciliation, life with God, conversion, transformation, the community of faith. And they've just spent 40 days with the resurrected Jesus, the God who gave this celebration to their great, 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 however many great grandfathers. 
And that same God had now finished his work of salvation. How could they not be out there celebrating this incredible work of God with God's people? Uh, what I do think is interesting to think about, though, is to imagine what it must have been like or might have been like for the disciples and the apostles worshiping alongside their fellow Jews and converts to Israelite faith, knowing what they knew. They knew that Jesus had been raised from the dead, but the family carrying the tired little kids on their shoulders didn't. They knew that Jesus had paid the penalty for their sins and died for us while we were yet sinners, but the kids getting the ice cream, uh, secretly wondering if they would ever be good enough to be loved, they didn't know that. The disciples knew that Jesus was in heaven right then, getting ready in his time to begin a season of new life and new birth. But the husband and the wife walking silently next to each other, wondering if anyone would notice that they were pretending they had a good marriage, they didn't know that. What must it have been like to see these people, your people, the people of God, wondering if God was there, wondering if he really heard them, if he really answered them, if he would really transform them and keep his promises. Being with people who were celebrating life with God, but some of them anyway, wondering if that life was really available to them in any meaningful way. Maybe it sounds a little bit uh, like life in the church sometimes. As the apostles and the disciples are there worshiping Jesus, full of joy, I'm sure, full of hope full of longing for Jesus to begin his work, suddenly there's the sound of a mighty rushing wind, which if you've ever heard the sound of a tornado or a super strong thunderstorm, it sounds like a train. So you can imagine that sound. And then in this crowd, about 120 flaming tongues of fire appear over the heads of the apostles and the disciples. Now the Greek word for tongue can also mean language, and I think our translators have chosen to translate that word as tongue throughout our text rather than language uh, to make that connection for us. Uh, and that's okay because it shows that there's a pun there, right? God inserts a little humor into this historical event, and why not? It's a time of celebration. God has a sense of humor. You're supposed to have a little bit of a smile at what's going on here in this story. Uh, and then those 120 or so disciples of Jesus, they start proclaiming the gospel of Christ to all the people who were there to celebrate life with God. And you can see the list of languages in verses 8 through 11. And you have to imagine with 120 people speaking different languages, there were even more languages than are listed there for us in verses 8 through 11. I think that passage is representative. I don't think it's exhaustive. The question would be, why does God do it this way? I think there's two reasons. One is, Jesus wants to show us in a very powerful way his commitment to bringing the gospel of his finished work to every tribe, tongue, and language on earth, as he says throughout the Bible. Jesus wants the whole world to have a lifetime and an eternal lifetime of the joy and hope that the disciples had during the Pentecost festival through the gospel. And the second reason, the language that we speak to our loved ones in our homes is the closest to our hearts. Uh, if you know more than one language, you or have you ever traveled extensively out of, into a country where they speak a different language other than English for us, or maybe whatever your native language is, 
uh, you know what it is when you're traveling, when you're in your home, just that language and to hear yourself spoken to in that language by your loved ones. And I think Jesus does this not only to show his commitment to the world, but also, I believe, as a God who made languages, who delights in languages, to further increase the joy of those who heard. And as a side note, uh, I don't think we should picture these 120 disciples all shouting about Jesus in 120 different languages at the same time. Uh, that would be more like the unintelligible but joyful noise of the saints who are praising God in heaven in the book of Revelation. Uh, but it wouldn't be understandable to the people there. And it would have also kept Peter from addressing everyone in a way that could have been understood as well as heard. Now, I think what happened is, and this is an educated guess, so it's a guess, but it's an educated guess. <laughs> I think the disciples were directed by the Holy Spirit to notice this group of Egyptian converts over there, those Parthian Jews over there, those Greek proselytes over there. And they went up to them and they started telling them about Jesus in their own language. And this all happens at once. And so you have this loud commotion going on, not because people are shouting, but because you have all these conversations. And that's what draws in the people who are not part of those initial groups that are addressed. And everyone's going, what is going on? Something's happening. So now with that festival context set, let's quickly talk about the content of Peter's sermon. So it's important to know that this sermon is very much shaped by the people who are there. This is not Paul's sermon to the Greek philosophers in the Areopagus in Acts 17, who have no idea about the Bible, who don't know anything about the God of the Bible, uh, who have just the most general knowledge of sort of uh, of of of, uh, of God, who God is through creation. This sermon that Peter preaches here to this crowd would have meant almost nothing to that crowd. Uh, no, this is a sermon to the people of God who know the Bible intimately, who have all of it or most of it memorized, who love God, who want to serve God, and who, like us, are struggling with sin. And who, like us, sometimes are wondering if God is done with us. And it's in that context that Peter talks to them about the Christ. Or to use the Hebrew name, which means the same thing, the Messiah. That means the promised one. And the time is short. I have a lot to say. So just for brevity's sake, the Messiah, the Christ, is the promised Savior of God's people. And if you think back to Genesis, when Adam and Eve sinned, they experienced shame before each other and before God. They experience alienation from one another and from God. They hide from each other. They hide from themselves. They experience guilt. They experience homelessness as they're kicked out of the garden. And they eventually experience death. And all of these things are represented in Genesis by the serpent, by Satan. But before God sends them out, he gives them a promise that a son will be born who would crush Satan's head, meaning there would be a promised one who would exchange their shame for acceptance and their guilt for forgiveness, their alienation for unity, their homelessness for hospitality, and their death for life. And that Messiah would do this by having his heel struck by Satan, or as is promised in Isaiah, by giving up his life 
so that the people he died for could live. And this Messiah will be recognizable because the power of the God of life would be in him and be used by him to bring God's own life to God's people. And just like I can say to you, the Lord is my shepherd, and immediately the profound truths of Psalm 23 appear in your mind out of the depths of your heart. So Peter can say in verse 22 in a sermon full of quotes and allusions to the Old Testament, which if you have study Bibles, will appear there in your side notes. This is the same kind of thing for them as saying the Lord is my shepherd is for you. He says in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words, references to, which are references there to uh, Moses and Joshua and David and Elijah. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Again, references to Moses and Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And in those words, which don't maybe strike us as deeply as they would have to the original uh, audience. The married couple who wondered if they could put on another show in public, the kids who worried about being loved for who they are, the families with kids on their shoulders just wondering how they're going to be able to get home for naps, they knew that Jesus fit the description of the Messiah. But they also knew that he died. But then they learned that he was raised from the dead, as the scriptures promise. Verse 24, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because, and this is so beautiful, it was not possible for him to be held by death. Why is it impossible for Jesus to be held by death? Because death is the penalty for sin, but Jesus was perfect. And therefore the penalty had no claim on him at all. And because Jesus is the Lord, he's the one who gives God's own life to us. That's verses 25, 28. He's celebrating what the Messiah does. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, verse 25, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness in your presence. The Christ has life and gives it to his people so that they can live in the fullest, most joy-filled sense of that word, life. By exchanging their ashes for beauty and their condemnation with open heart acceptance by suffering and dying in their place, Jesus gives the life of God to its people. And to be clear, it's Jesus, God himself, who does this freely for us. And so Peter's whole point here is, my friends, Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah who brings God's own life to us. And Jesus is the King, or uh, the Lord, as Peter says in verse 36. And here I have a short point, but it's an important point. Uh, in Israel, the king's job was bigger than the administration of justice, which itself is a huge job. It's deeply important. God cares. Jesus cares very much, very deeply about justice and injustice. And remember, Jesus knows what it means 
to suffer unjustly to be and to be executed unjustly. But the king of Israel's job was even bigger than justice. He was called to lead God's people in paths of righteousness, to not only lead them in justice, but also in mercy, in forgiveness, in worship, and in wisdom. Uh, it might help you to think of the king's job description in ancient Israel as the CDO, the Chief Discipleship Officer. Uh, and that CDO job is so important. Uh, so you don't have to raise your hands, but uh, how many of you struggle with bitterness? Uh, how many of you struggle with anger? Uh, how many of you struggle with listening with empathy and understanding? How many of you are like me and just want to jump right in right now? I heard what you said. I already know words. How many of you struggle to pray? How many of you struggle to worship? How many of you struggle to fellowship and find communion in the body of, of, of Christ? And, and now how many of you have tried to push through those things by sheer force of will, grit your teeth, and change? Uh, and for how many of you has that worked for more than a few months at most, right? That kind of change requires the gift of Christ's discipleship. Christ's own formation, spiritual formation within us. It requires being led by Jesus wisely, gently, kindly, and also firmly. It requires being drawn into the holiness of God himself, by which I mean the very relational life of God. That is how people change in Christ's kingdom. And that's how the church experiences today the victory of the Messiah. We need discipleship if we are going to be drawn into the holy life of God, and that requires a king, a lord, who will lead us himself into that life. And this Pentecost audience, they knew that, and you know that. And it's why Peter says in verses 33 to 36, which I'll read again, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And that's why God's people, people who are very much like you and me, were cut to the heart, the text says, the deepest parts of their heart, their longings, their fears, their desires were exposed and laid bare. And as they were revealed through God's word preached, they were met by the hope and reality of Jesus's finished work and their, his role as their king. And so they asked, verse 37, in a phrase that every preacher wants to hear. And actually, one of my best friends actually had someone ask this question to him after he preached once, and I'm very jealous of him. Brothers, what shall we do? <laughs> Brothers, what shall we do? Uh, which, by the way, is not a question about conversion, and this is important. These are not pagans, all right? These are worshipers of God. But they see and they hear this new thing God has done. The Messiah has come. He's heard our prayers. He's died for our sins. He's offering us life. He's the king, the Lord, who's going to lead us into the, the very life of God. How do we join him 
How do our lives get united to his life? Brothers, what should we do? Peter's answer, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off. So Peter says, repent, turn from your ways to the ways of Jesus. Be united to him and his kingdom through baptism, you and your children, and know that Jesus will give you the same power, the same Holy Spirit to walk as his disciples as he has given to us. Now, over the next couple of weeks, we're going to expand on a bunch of themes here as we look to verses 42 to 47. We're going to start that next week. But I want to end with a little reflection on the very beginning of Peter's sermon which I have skipped up until now, where he quotes from the prophet Joel. That's that long section there. Uh, what is that? Verses uh, 17 through 21. The nickname of the book of Joel back in Jesus's day, and maybe even significantly earlier than Jesus's day, is the book of repentance. And in the Bible, repentance is not a one-time thing. It's a daily thing. Repentance it means choosing God's way of life over your own way of life. It's choosing God's path over your path. Uh, because God's ways lead into life always, and our paths lead to death always. And if you need a quick example, think of the last time you decided to ignore Jesus's uh, word and do things your way. How's that friendship working out for you? I mean, how did that turn out? It did not lead to life. And in Joel, Jesus is inviting his people to return, to repent, to return to him. And with that invitation comes a promise that when they turn to Jesus, they will be met with the exodus power of God because the section in Joel is a reflection on the way God himself met his people in the wilderness leading them in a pillar of fire, in a pillar of cloud, fire, cloud, and vapor of smoke, as you see there at the end of, at the end of uh, that passage. Also, when God pours out his spirit on Israel to let them know that he will indwell them and be with them and live them uh, during the Exodus, it's, it's a reference back to the Old Testament story of how God meets his people in the wilderness and walks with them through repentance into life. This is a promise that when they turn to Jesus, they will be met with the exodus power of God, the power that shattered the enslaving strength of Egypt that led them in the wilderness as a pillar of cloud and fire, the power that spoke words of life through Moses and Aaron and Miriam and Joshua. Jesus is saying in Joel, when you turn to me, I will meet you in all my redemptive power. Or as Paul will say in Colossians, Jesus is the one in whom the fullness of God dwells. Now, God showed that redemptive power here at Pentecost in a very unique way by having his people speak in probably over 100 different languages. And like the parting of the Red Sea, that never happens again in the Bible. But the point of that unique expression of the Spirit is to drive home the promise of Joel, which is my redemptive power my redemptive presence always meets those who turn to me. Always. If you choose my ways over yours, if you follow me, if you trust me, I will lead you into life. 
And as you've seen in Exodus, no power of hell, no scheme of man, no desert heat, no army, no demon, nothing can stop me from leading you into life. And I want to end on this point, friends, because uh, for the original audience and for us, the importance of Pentecost is not simply the time in the past when a, when a big thing happened that you should know about. It's not an event to know about for a history quiz. Uh, the importance of Pentecost is that Jesus wants to cement the joy and hope of his gospel deeply into our hearts. He wants us to know that he is the Messiah who brings God's own life to us. That he is the Lord, the King, who leads us deeper into that life with God. And that as we repent every day, as we wake up and say, your way is not mine, Christ, follow him, he meets us with the entirety of his resurrecting, slave-freeing, desert-feeding, water-parting power. He meets us with the redemptive work of his Messiah. Which means when we think about our mission as maturing disciples who are called to make mature disciples, we can have hope and confidence. Uh, we can mature and grow as Christians. We can be transformed. Our neighbors can be saved and transformed by Jesus. We can be united together in faith and love and truly joyful, joy-filled, peace-filled fellowship here at Grace because Jesus lives, because Jesus reigns, and Jesus and all his redemptive power is with us. Amen? Let's pray together. Father, thank you that Jesus is both the Christ who brings us life and the Lord who leads us into life. Uh, thank you for the power of Jesus that meets us when we repent and for the discipling work of Jesus that teaches us how to repent, who transforms us into mature disciples who follow our King well and so can help others follow him well. Lord, please help us to live as those who believe that Jesus is alive, that he reigns, uh, that he is present, and that he is working powerfully to grow the kingdom among us. Uh, please help us to trust that as we follow his will and follow his ways, he meets us with all the fullness of your grace and presence. And we ask this for his name and again for the sake of his work in our lives. Amen.